I have the privilege of introducing our guest speaker this morning, Marcus. Marcus, um, almost said his last name, don't want to. Um, and for reasons. So, Marcus, you may remember some of you who have been coming here for a while, grew up coming to Westchester. And he graduated from Urbandale High School in a while ago. Um, <laughs> Then he graduated from Truman State uh, with a degree in music. And again, those of you who have been here for a while may remember him playing saxophone yeah. while he was in high school and college once in a while up in front. And so then in 84, 1994, sorry, not, you're not quite that old. That would be my <laughs> age. Um, he joined uh, crew, campus crew, Campus Crusade for Christ. Everybody calls it crew now, so, so it's hard for me to even get that out of my mouth. And he, um, and then in 2014, he completed his de theological degree from Reformed Theological Center in Orlando, which is where crew is headquartered. Um, in 2010, he made the second best choice of his life, and he got married to Shannon Brooks. And they have two sons, um, Charles and Christian, six and four, and this was an interesting fact. They have served uh, 50, in 50 and 31 countries, respectively, during their lives already. That's how many countries they've been to. So uh, Marcus and Shannon have served with crew both in campus ministry and then most recently with the Jesus Film Project. And right now they are specializing in training church planters in how to use the 200 or so films that the Jesus, Fil Jesus Film Project produces um, to, to um, help them with multiplication and church planting work among some of the most unreached countries in the world. So it is my pleasure to introduce Marcus. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. Well, thank you. It is super good to be back with you. Um, it's always fun to come back here because things change, but things don't. Um, I was thinking this morning, uh, popping in here, I don't miss the turquoise carpet. Like, I, do you, anyone long enough here to remember? This used to be turquoise. And you would enter, and it was like, wow, there's a lot of turquoise in that room. Um, and uh, there's just so many memories here. I, uh, bad ideas, but I was thinking of um, when I was in youth group here, um, our youth pastor, who will not be named at this moment, but uh, got this bright idea that on a, a fun day for the youth group, um, we would have push races with the church's two conversion vans. Uh, we used to have these two vans that were parked out there. One was blue and one was like a brown color. And uh, he divided us up into two teams and one group of youth people was on one and one group, and they had to push them across the parking lot. And uh, it was all great until someone almost got run over. No one got hurt, but Things that, you know, you just go, huh. So lots of memories here. Um, I'm, uh, I'm really glad to be with you today. And uh, I had a, a funny thing happen. I, uh, I haven't uh, been teaching a lot uh, since before the pandemic. And uh, this weird thing happened to me. So last night, I, you know, I'd worked on my sermon this week. I, I printed my notes out and uh, got them all done, got them all ready. And then I looked at them and I'm like, oh, I can't read those. <laughs> So I have 14 pages of notes because I had to make the font so big so that I could actually read them. So um, things change. Uh, they do. Um, okay. Turn with me to Psalm 45. We're going to look at uh, Psalm 45 today. And uh, 
This summer, if you've been here, uh, you know that the elders have uh, enlisted a bunch of us to, to preach through the, the book of Psalms and pick some of our favorite Psalms. And uh, so we're going to look at this one because I love this topic. Uh, I've entitled it, Make Your King Look Good. And we're going to look at um, who the, the church, whom uh, the scriptures refer to as the bride of Christ, uh, as we see it in this passage. And how do we as his bride or as his church, make Jesus look great. Um, if you're in Psalm 45, let me find my giant text here. Um, look at the very last verse, 17. He says, I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise, your, praise you forever and ever. Think of, um, think of the last wedding that you attended. Um, if it was in this room, you know, more than likely the groom and his groomsmen came in and were seated here, and the groom's probably in the middle, and um, then the, the bridal party processes down, and um, everything is leading up to a, a certain event, right? What are you waiting for? You're waiting for the bride to appear, and the first thing you'll notice is that, you know, the music pumps up, changes, and everyone stands, and you'll see the groom standing up here, and his face just lights up, and he sees his bride right there coming forward. And uh, everything in a typical modern wedding is, is really, I think you could argue, associated around the bride. But if you think of the ancient world, it was exactly the opposite. Everything was about the groom, or in this case, the king and the groom. And if you'll turn that imagery on your head, I, on its head, I think you'll see what's going on in this passage. Um, before we dig into um, this specific Psalm 45, I, I want to give you um, a little bit of background just on the Psalms in general. Uh, I think it'll help us as we look at this. Um, so this is a, a royal wedding psalm. And psalms are, are just poetry, really. Um, they were probably um, used musically. In fact, there's musical terms throughout the psalms. You'll see them often sung, performed, and they're designed um, by nature of poetry to move us emotionally to respond to a theological truth. So they should in some way affect our emotions and connect our emotions to our heads and allow us to praise God in some fashion or learn more about God in some fashion. So let me pray and then uh, we're gonna uh, tear this apart a little bit and see what God would have for us. Jesus, thanks. Thank you for giving us your word. Thank you that in your wisdom, uh, thousands of years ago, you led men to write down the words that you would want us to know so that we can know what you would have us to learn about you. And so this morning, would you fill me with your spirit? Would you allow us to better understand who you are through the lens of your word um, and through its understanding? Guide me, your servant, and us your servants to hear and to understand and to most of all apply what you would have for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, if you look at this one, it's like many others. At the very beginning, before the little number one in Psalm 45, you'll see some uh, kind of notes from the, uh, from the writer. Um, I'm preaching from the ESV, whatever version you're using, they're very similar, but it says, to the choir master according to the lilies, a maskal of the sons of Korah, a love song. Um, according to Lilies, th 
theologians think that that's probably just a common tune that people would have known in the ancient world. A maskal, no one really knows what that means. It's a musical term. Of the sons of Korah, um, if you know your biblical history, the sons of Korah were, were musicians in the temple. They were priestly musicians. Um, and a, a wedding song, the NIV says, or a love song um, we see here. Um, but it would have been, this one specifically, would have been composed for the wedding of a king, king of Israel. So the king isn't identified in this specific one. We don't really know. And that's not really important other than the fact that he's a, son, a descendant of David. So David, the king of Israel, is the dynasty that's going to be talked about in, in eternal terms. And that's why we know that this one was um, someone in the line of David. It could have been Solomon. It could have been one of Solomon's sons in the divided kingdom. Uh, verse 16 gives us some clues. Uh, in the place of your fathers shall be your sons, you will make them princes in all the earth. The idea that just as this king's father served, so would his descendants serve. Um, okay, so uh, you've seen the intro. Let's, um, in your um, bulletin or on you version, whatever you're using, you'll see some notes. All I've done is put in the notes a structural outline of what I think this passage is. And I'll keep um, driving the guys in the back crazy, flipping back and forth. But go to the next slide, and this you'll see the the beginning, um, how do we as his bride make Jesus look great? And then the next one, here you see the introduction in section one. So in section one, we're gonna, uh, we're gonna focus on the groom or the king because this is a uh, bridal, I'm sorry, this is a wedding ceremony that we're looking at. And then the next slide, um, you'll see section three and four here now in section, uh, let's see, section three, one next, Oh, wait, section, yeah, 10 through 15, we see praise for the royal bride or the queen. And then the last one is a conclusion by the author or the composer of this. So um, back one more, just to review. Section one, you've got an introduction by the author. Section two, you've got a section on the groom. Section three, you've got a section about the bride and then the conclusion by the author. Okay, so we're gonna read 45, one through nine. So follow along with me, and then I'll, I'll make some comments on that. Um, verse 1. My heart overflows with a ple pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on high, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and the meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand each let the right hand teach your awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the hearts of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. So in verse one, um, again, I said that this is the introduction. You can almost imagine the composer or the author of this psalm um, finishing it eagerly waiting to recite it at the king's wedding. Um, my heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen 
of a ready scribe. And then in verse 2, the author starts in on who is this king, celebrates him with this, this most regal language. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Uh, <laughs> interestingly, I, uh, I heard a rumor that um, Pastor Chuck makes the staff recite that verse at staff meetings. Is that still true? <laughs> anyway. Um, you are the most handsome of the sons of men. Verse 2b, grace is poured upon your lips, therefore God has blessed you forever. Probably the idea that not only has God um, made him handsome, but he's given him the ability to, to speak articulately. Um, and then verse 3 through 5 really deals with the king's military prowess. We, hear, we see the sword and the scepter. You know, a king is expected to conquer his enemies. Right out victoriously, the right hand, the idea of judgment, the idea of authority. Um, verse 5 says, your arrows are sharp against the king's enemies. Peoples fall under you. Here, the psalmist is saying, the king is going to be victorious. May you be victorious. And then in verse 6 is this really interesting sort of aside. There's a, there's a change of speech. The part of speech changes, and God is addressed in the first person, which would have caused, I think, the hearer at the time to go back and think, wait a second, was the author all along talking about uh, the king's actions on behalf of God? Clearly, this isn't a reference just to a human king. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. He's referring to God directly. I think that there's also in verse 6 this connection between righteousness that the king displays and the uprightness of God, which you see at the end of verse 4. So all of this is, is lifting up the king as God's anointed one. And then in the verse 7, the psalmist says, God has anointed you beyond your companions, which would probably make the hero go back to verse 2 and connect the fact that God has blessed him forever. Um, verse 8 and 9, look at that. Uh, we've got very significant wedding imagery here. The, the garments, the surrounding, the music, the company you can imagine yourself at, at the wedding. All of that is really consistent with what we would have seen of an ancient royal wedding. Robes fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia from ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings, ladies of honor. Here we see the, the royal wedding attendees. Um, the queen, or I think the, the royal bride is probably more accurate in the gold of Ophir. Uh, here we've got the, the bride adorned for her wedding day. You can picture all of this happening. Then, go on to the next slide. Now we're in this part of the um, outline. Let's look at the, the last part of the verse and unpack that a little bit. And then I'll, I'll go back and I'll help us try to understand what I think God would have for us today. Now we're going to focus on the bride. So hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. I'm in verse 10. Forget your people in your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber, with robes interwoven with gold and many colored robes she has led to the king, with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness, they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. So verse 10, hero daughter, 
forget your people in your father's house, it, it probably implies like the marriage of a foreign princess, you know, leave your father, come and be part of the king and the, ki the kingdom. Verse 11 says, honor him or, or bow to him. It sort of reflects the, the Near East, ancient Near East responsibility of a royal king is to honor the, the king. Verse 12, other peoples will seek your favor, so the, the bride here will have status. Her position will command respect. Um, the people of Tyre, which was a major trading partner of ancient Israel, uh, where modern Lebanon, and they're invoked. Like, these people are going to seek you as someone who can get an audience with the king. Verse 15, with joy and gladness they're led along. So this, this wedding is a joyous occasion for everyone involved. Now, look at 16 and 17, and it shifts back sort of to the, the king's future or the, the succession of the, the royal dynasty. Um, I already referred to it in verse 16, in place of your father shall be your son. Uh, and then verse 17, the author sort of brings it back to himself, the same way that he introduced it in, in verse 1, which I've already read, but I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise your, your name forever and ever. Um, the idea of of praising you almost always refers to God in scripture. So um, the, the recipient is gonna hear this and gonna go, wait, something bigger is going on here. Okay, go back to the first slide. Um, yep, that one. And we're gonna, we're gonna start unpacking this from what would God have for us and how do we as Jesus' bride make, us, um, make his name great. So think about this, this Psalm, would have been read in Israel for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus came. So if you're a Jew and you're living in Babylon 400 years before when Jesus came, what do you do with a psalm that lifts up the king and talks about the dynasty lasting forever and ever? Think about it. There's no longer a kingdom. There's no king. Israel as a nation has been devastated and exiled to Babylon. They've been defeated. You gotta be thinking, wow, if this is true, then there's something bigger going on here. And I, I love it that, that uh, Gerald Wilson, uh, fantastic Old Testament scholar, he says of this, listen to this. References to ancient kings in a now defunct kingdom were resigned to speak of a future one who would come to accomplish what all those former human rulers had been unable to do to fulfill the expectations of God and lead his people rightly in the paths of Yahweh. So in contrast to human kings, his kingship supported by God would never fail. So Israel's thinking of this passage shifted and then we come to the New Testament and we see the author of Hebrews in chapter one, verse eight and nine, referring to Jesus and lifting verse six and seven directly out of this passage, verbatim, he says, in Hebrews 1, 8, and 9, it mimics um, Psalm 45, 6, and 7. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So we don't know um, with certainty who penned the book of Hebrews, and yet we know from what he writes about that he had a deep Jewish understanding of the scriptures. And he is taking this passage from Psalm 
and he knows that it refers to the Messiah, and now he's connecting it to Jesus as the true Messiah. So God used both Israel's circumstances and the author of the book of Hebrews to let us know that Psalm 45 was really talking about Jesus. And that's where we then, as his church, need to go with our understanding. So I think God would have us do a couple things from this passage. I think he'd have us to uh, understand, firstly, that Jesus is the true king. As you read Psalm 45, on, on the surface, aren't you kind of struck by how much God is invoked in this royal wedding? Usually weddings are really just kind of about the bride and the groom. But this one is, man, God is all over this. And then look, at, look again at this in verse 2. Now we're going to bring our New Testament understanding into this. Grace is poured upon your lips. I, I, that takes me immediately to the, uh, John 7, where, do you remember the story where Jesus sends out, or I'm sorry, the Pharisees send out uh, guards to arrest Jesus? And they come kind of timidly back to them, and they're like, well, why didn't you arrest him? And in verse 46 of John 7, the officers answer, well, no one ever spoke like this man. There's the sense in which Jesus answered what the psalmist is saying. Grace is poured out on your lips. In verse 4, um, again, this passage of triumph, in your majesty, ride out victoriously. Well, that takes me right to John 12, where on Palm Sunday, we celebrate Jesus's triumphal entry as the king into Jerusalem. And so I, I think that there's this connection between this passage and who is Jesus. And then for sure, verse 6 and 7, you can't read that and not see something bigger going on. God has anointed you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Well, think about Luke 1, where, where Gabriel, the angel, appears to Jesus' uh, mother Mary. He says, and behold, we read this every Christmas, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And then in verse 32 of Luke 1, um, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So here, the angel of God specifically talks of Jesus in this kind of language. So we're to understand as his church that Jesus is the true king, and I think we're to understand that we as the church are the bride of Christ. Um, Paul compares the church to the bride of Christ in Ephesians 5. Paul exhorts husbands to love their wives. He says, as Christ loved the church, and he gave himself for her. And he relates husband and wives, and he tells us in verse 32, actually, I'm not just talking about husband and wives, I'm talking about the church. And then in 1 Corinthians, he later talks about how um, he promised the church to God to the, as a pure bride to Christ. And then um, in the very last book, Revelation 19, John has this vision of the future, and he recounts um, the church as the bride of Christ. He says, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. There's this idea that the church is ready for Jesus to receive him. Verse 11, um, if you go back to the, the psalmist, since he is your Lord, bow down to him. The NIV says honor, but literally in the, in the Hebrew, it means to worship him. That implies intimacy, submission, sort of a yielding to him um, as the true king. And I already alluded to this, but in uh, verse 11, it talks about the people of Tyre. Um, where is that? Verse 12, the people of Tyre will seek your favor. Um, it, it, it's fun that there's an 
instance in the gospel where Jesus actually goes to Tyre and he heals this Syrophoenician woman. And the woman says to him, um, well, even the dogs deserve to eat from the master's table. And he commends the woman for having great faith. So here is Jesus reaching even out to non-Jews and non-Jews embracing him as Christ. So you see that in here. Look at all this imagery that you see. Um, and then in verse 13 and 14 of Psalm 45, you see, all glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold, and she's led to the king. Well, look at Revelation 19. The bride has made herself ready. And Revelation 19, 8, it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Do you see what's going on here? The, the psalmist is writing in greater understanding than the author would have had of the true Messiah coming and his church being prepared for as a bride. So if we as his church are the bride of Christ, then we better be thinking, huh, this has bearing on my life. What are we to do as his bride? Well, I think we're to do a couple things. As his bride, we're to trust Jesus and seek him for what we need and to realize that he'll provide. And then we're to make ourselves ready for his return. Paul writes to second, in 2 Timothy 4, he says in verse 8, Now there's in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. We're to, as his bride, long for his appearing, which I think means make ourselves ready for him to return. So we're to trust him for what we need, and then as his bride, were to make him known to others. In verse 17, where I started, the psalmist writes, I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. Jesus is coming back. He will return. And he wants that his name would be known. Peter instructs us super um, poignantly in this regard in 1 Peter 3. Uh, verse 15 and 17. Listen to this. This is what we as his church are to do, to prepare ourselves. But in your heart, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will, then for doing evil. So it's the bride's job to make the groom, or the king here, look good. Can you, um, can you think of a friend or a family member who sort of models making their spouse look good? Um, maybe it's your spouse. In my case, that is. Um, I have the most amazing wife. She she challenges me so much in this regard. She has this amazing skill that she learned from her mom and from the Holy Spirit's work in her life. And I often tell people that I don't care much to what people think about me and or what they say about me, but I do care what people say to others about me. And so I love when I have the occasion to hear Shannon talking about me to someone else. Um, and I never hear her complaining about me. And there's plenty to complain about, believe me. And yet, when she talks about me, and when I hear her, like I'm in the other room and I hear her talking about me, she, she speaks of me in language that I don't deserve. 
she's usually bragging about something that I've done or how I am. She's amazing and she's super challenging. That's the idea we see here. When you talk about Jesus, how do you talk about him? Do you talk about Jesus? <laughs> do you talk about him with those who don't know him? How do we make him look good? Well, two application points, and, and this is the challenge that I'm giving myself, so I'm also giving it to you. Um, I think we're to do two things. If Psalm 45 is true, and we have a royal king who has done everything for us, then we should live a life that represents him to others. Um, honesty, purity, character, integrity. Do you do what you say? Do you act in a manner that's consistent with what you value? Second Peter 2 says, um, Peter says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Um, Chris told you a little bit about what we do. Uh, if you've ever had a chance for to hear us talk about um, our work with the Jesus film. Um, this year it's looked really different because most of it has been done in our bedroom on a computer screen. But typically we travel a lot and we, and we train church planters around the world to use our films to, to plant churches, to tell people about him. And we've been um, working a lot in India this past spring, um, virtually training people to, to, to tell people about Jesus. And, uh, if you've been following the news, you, you know that um, COVID, a wave of COVID came through India, and it, it had crazy, crazy effects. Um, the last uh, I heard, over 3,600 kids had been orphaned where both parents had died of COVID, and they were left without parents. What's not been nearly as well reported is that, uh, you know who's actually helping the most to take care of those 3,600 orphans? It's Christians in India. And it's amazing. It's this amazing testimony to the church. And yet, what's going on is they're being accused of, wrongly, of child trafficking. Because the majority religion doesn't want that Christians would be known for caring for orphans. And yet, their faith and their commitment to living out a life that represents Jesus is so starkly contrasted to the majority religion. It's super challenging. Do I, do you, live a life that represents him to others? Secondly, how do we make him look good? Well, tell people about him. Talk about him. What do you tell others about Jesus? Have you told them about him? Have you told them about him? Do they know that you know him? Or do they just kind of like see your good things and think, oh, they, he must be a really good moral person? Super challenging to me. Um, have you ever met a, a salesperson, maybe some of you are salespeople, um, who really believe in the product they sell? Um, I have a, a friend in Minnesota, we, we just visited him, and uh, he is maybe the best salesperson I've ever met. But he's so good at this because whatever he is selling at a particular time, he, he is all in on that product, and he is going to tell you about it. And that's true for just stuff in his personal life, whether it's Toyota anything, or estate sales, he was big into estate sales, or Charles Schwab free checking, or antioxidants, or CrossFit, or avoiding high fructose corn syrup. Whatever he is into, he is, he is gonna talk about that. But it also doesn't go too long in a conversation before he brings up Jesus in that conversation, because he feels strongly about all those things, but he feels even more strongly about Jesus. And it's just part of his everyday conversation. Super challenging to him. Similarly, um, Mark 
in verse 15 of chapter 16, commands his disciples, and by extension us, to go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. That's a command to everyone, his church, his bride. That's not just a command to go everywhere. It's a command to go here, too. And if we're brutally honest, and if I'm brutally honest, I'm not concerned with making Jesus' name great. I want people to think about me, or I want to promote my values, or what makes me comfortable. And I've been really, really challenged. You know, when you, when you serve Jesus, I think oftentimes you, you, you tell people about him, but you get back so much in return as you, as you proclaim his name. And that's really been true. Um, so this spring, we were really heavily working in India. This summer, we've been focusing a lot of our efforts, of our efforts virtually on uh, a really closed, closed country in a part of Southeast Asia. And uh, again, I'm super challenged by this, but we've been training Christians there, again, to use our films to plant churches and to reach out. And Shannon was uh, in, a, in a training the other day, and she was, uh, she was just talking to them before the training just to kind of get a little context about who, whom she was training. And uh, she asked them just, well, how's persecution there? Like, you know, what are you experiencing? How easy is it to be a Christian? And, uh, you know, we know. I mean, it was kind of a, a rhetorical question because she actually knew what was going on. She just wanted to hear from them. Uh, I mean, they're, they're facing corporal punishment. They're facing death. They're facing, you know, imprisonment. There's, they're facing, like, kids being taken away from the parents. Uh, there's just a lot going on. And, and they said, well, we have a lot less persecution than we had 10 years ago. And so... We're, we're not really afraid to share Jesus because the church was growing a lot more when we used to have more persecution. Now it's just kind of stagnant and we're not seeing much growth. Talk about challenge. Here, here I'm you know, sitting in my comfortable pew, not risking that the authorities are going to come in here and arrest us for meeting. And here they're concerned that they don't have enough of that, <laughs> you know, that they want to make Christ known so that his church can grow. So how do we, as his bride, as his church, make his name great? Well, live a life that represents him to others and talk about him. Don't just assume that others know about him. Tell others about him. Be a beautiful bride. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for the challenge that it is to me, to us, as we look at Psalm and and realize that these words that were penned thousands of years ago really point to me and to us as his church. And so help us to live a life that honors you and to represent you well to others as his church, as his bride. Thank you for these moments in your word. Thanks that you've given us your word. Help us to take this and to use it as you would see fit in our lives through the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand as we close in song.